Hey, this is Dave McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. Recently, Congress passed a massive trillion-dollar, more than trillion-dollar spending bill. And in there, it's a really interesting piece of information about telecom infrastructure upgrades, over $65 billion worth. That's a lot of money. We throw those numbers around like they don't mean anything, but they mean a lot. And so to get some perspective on this, I invited Doug Money, who's editor-in-chief of Satellite IT Bridge. He contributes to various periodicals. He's a brilliant mind in this space. And Doug's an expert in areas of telecom, space, satellite, all these different areas. And he talked to me about how this literally could change our lives for us, which seems pretty dramatic. But he talks about how if we introduce fiber into our homes, into businesses, into uh, ag tech, all these various areas where there is no fiber today, or it's very difficult to get to rural areas, for example, how literally it could change the world for us. And he believes for the better. He's an optimist like I am. It's a fascinating conversation. I think you'll enjoy Doug's unique personality and his perspective. So please join us on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. How we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Doug Money, welcome back to the QTS Experience. How are you? My pleasure. Feeling fine. Have you managed to avoid the season of... Uh, crazy um, illnesses that have been going around. My family has not. This is my second bout with this crazy stuff. And we're vaxxed, probed, boosted, whatever, but it feels like it's no respecter of persons. Um, so far, so good. Um, I think probably the two things that have saved me, well, um, are one, I'm triple vaxxed. Um, in other words, I got two shots in the booster, triple right. D as I like to call it. Right. And then um, I upgraded N95 masks uh, probably somewhat early into Omicron. I you know, cloth masks were just like mm, forget it, right. gotta go with a with a heavier duty mask. So right. I, between those two things and and being um, socially reclusive, shall I say, with, <laughs> with, with with one or two exceptions, which we're going to talk about later. Yeah, that's um, right. We're um, you know I so far so good. Knock on wood. Um, you know. I'll leave it at that for now. I just, right. I, I know other people who've gotten COVID and, 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 um, you know, it's kind of like, okay, who, you know, uh, who friend or acquaintance, friend or relative this week that's gets COVID is basically right. what the season is. You know, it reminded me of a couple things. One, my wife wants to get a shirt that says I was agoraphobia before agoraphobia was cool or something like that. I'm like, come on woman. Um, but the other is, uh, um, the masks, I had this really good conversation, and this is a not political conversation. This has nothing to do with that. In fact, I've, I've had this a number of times. I just don't want to feel manipulated. So if as we're going through this process, um, I, I, was, I had a conversation with somebody the other day, and I said, you know, you might want to change out your mask. Either don't wear a cloth mask or get the yeah. N95 mask. Because now, this is not a left or right, red or blue or whatever that we've been evaluating this thing for 24 months or so, 28 months. And here's the data that says these are effective fill in the blank behaviors, protocols, defense yeah. tools or whatever. 
let, let's just let we've adjusted to the best version of humanity is when you adjust to data that says, you know what, we probably should have been restricting something that we weren't and things that we were restricting or we believe to be true with the best of intentions might need to be adjusted. Let's just adjust. And so that we yeah. can have the best possible experience. And it feels like there is um, frequency. There's so much emotion around some of this. They're kind of trigger words that uh, it, it's, it's a uh, lumpy conversation all the time, at least in my world. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that, yeah, unfortunately the um, political aspects have, have overruled, you know, a, a <laughs> rational discussion in some respect. Well, Hey, look, we didn't come on the show to talk about that. I am super stoked for the folks who don't know from last time. Um, when last you came on, you were um, editor-in-chief of Satellite IT Bridge. You've got an additional gig to that now. Um, as we explained in the intro, what I'm fascinated with is your experience. And one of the big things that came out this fall um, was this infrastructure bill. And yeah. it affects our world in the connectivity world, which is everything from satellites and fiber and everything in between, what does it mean? I guess if you were trying to articulate to a lay audience, people that aren't really familiar with connectivity or even how they use it, what does that mean? Yeah. What does this build have to do with us? Well, I, I think the um, $65 billion in federal money and this, and that just is fed money. It's right. in the pipeline <laughs> plus money from last year, money forward. Um, it's the largest chunk of money we're seeing put to deploying broadband, high-speed broadband, mostly fiber optics, um, in the history of the United States. Um, there are some analysts in uh, trade groups, um, such as Fiber Broadband Association, that believe if this money's handled well, along with state funding coming in, because um, some of the states are, you know, a lot of the states after the, the, the COVID pandemic have decided, you know, we have to get fiber out to all of our citizens and we have to throw money into the pot. Um, anyways, some associations, including Fiber Broadband Association, believe that if properly managed, you can get fiber to everybody in the United States. Um, and this, will be, this is a once in a generational opportunity mm. to pull high speed, uh, future proofed or future enabled, depending upon which buzzword you want to use, um, broadband to every citizen in the U.S. pretty much. So so what does that mean for people who don't really think about that? What does, fi what does fiber enable if it gets, and when you say everybody, do you just mean in the metro area or do you mean in rural areas as well? In rural areas as well, coverage is... Coverage will be probably, you know, 95, 90, creeps up to 99%. Won't be 100% just because you have people with, um, you know, cabins, huts. They want sure. to be unplugged. They want to be grid. But, right. but, you know, pretty much everybody gets fiber. Well, you know, let's parse that through. What does fiber mean? Yeah. And, and um, you know, fiber is, if you take a, a deep breath and a step back, fiber is the building block of modern broadband infrastructure. Period, stop, end of story. Um, and that's, you know, from the core network involved between data centers and, and large um, ag uh, aggregators of, um, of networks talking to each other and going from top down from that stack all the way down to the individual um, guy like you and me sitting in our households. Um, today. Watching Ted Lasso or Stranger Things or. Yeah, exactly. Whatever. 
Um, but fiber makes that happen. And, and, and um, fiber is necessary for not only delivering consumer broadband, but delivering, um, uh, making data centers and access to that information, um, making, enabling that. Fiber is necessary for businesses, um, especially in a, um, I don't want to say post-COVID world, but in a, a enlightened world sure. um, for uh, symmetrical broadband. And then um, also uh, fiber is necessary for uh, multi-person video conferencing. Now um, I'm going to tell a story on myself. Okay. Um, you know, probably like five, six, seven years ago, I would sit in front of, I would sit in on various um, vendor meetings and, you know, the vendor meetings would roll out and they would say, oh yeah, you know, by the time we get to this date, we'll need uh, this much broadband because everybody in the house is going to want to do two-way video conferencing. And I'm like, <laughs> really? Right. Everybody in a four-family household <laughs> want to do video conferencing? No, that's not going to happen. Not in my lifetime. That doesn't make sense. We're not Jetsons. Right. And then, you know, all of a sudden, like COVID's just like, dumb, 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 hit me over the head. Because all of a sudden, if you went into a four-family household, you had, you know, the two breadwinners, um, two, two income households, they had to be online doing video conferencing two-way or multi-way. And then you had the, and you had the kids, um, you know, two children also having to attend classes remotely. Right. So um, that experience of remote learning and work from home, that combination of that experience was a wake-up call to a lot of folks at the state level who's thought that, you know, fiber, well, you know, it's okay, but I'll deal with it after I pave the roads. Right. Now it's, now it's an issue been, that at the state level where it's not quite at the level of roads, but it's, it's, it's climbing up there to, um, in terms of importance. Um, there are a number of states such as Virginia, West Virginia, um, Pennsylvania, who have all said, hey, we realize that broadband is necessary. We need to start putting more uh, state taxpayer money into broadband to fill in the gaps, so to speak. Um, Oregon as well. I mean, Oregon is uh, going to put like uh, 10, 20 million of its own money um, to build the, to build out a broadband office for, for the state. And, and right now they've only got one guy full time and, and they're like, hey, we need a staff of five because A, we need to build, we need to deal with our in-state projects and B, we need to deal with this influx of federal money coming in, and uh, we want a piece of that pie. Federal money um, for the states, every state is guaranteed um, a minimum of $100 million towards broadband projects in um, um, yeah, within their state. But when you consider the, the, the pie is $64 billion dollars, there's a lot of money up for grabs. Right. And everybody sees there's a lot of money up for grabs, all 50 states plus the territories. So everybody's trying to jockey for a large chunk of that money so they can serve as many citizens as possible um, in order to extend um, fiber um, out to the unserved and underserved citizens. Because there's a couple of things going on here when you start talking about fiber. Um, you know, fiber is a an enabling technology in order to deliver things like um, high-speed copper or uh, fixed wireless uh, and things like that for and, and cellular service um, to people within the last mile. If you start talking about 5G service and 5G is going to deliver us broadband, well, guess what? In, in order to deliver that that five to seven meg, uh, gigabits of 
wireless broadband through 5G as promised by AT&T, if you're not in an airport, um, you need to have a hundred mega, hundred gigabit or faster connection going into that five megabit cell tower delivery mechanism. Right. So you need to have fiber and, and you need to have big fiber pipes in order to deliver fiber, to deliver high speed wireless broadband at the edges. Um, so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is the cable industry. Um, they're updating their plant and they're moving away from, because one of the things that, that cable got burned when, when everybody decided they were doing two-way symmetrical video conferencing is that the cable plant is not built to do that. It just isn't. And um, it's, it's, it's a lot of legacy equipment using RF and coax cable and other black magic I will not pretend to understand. But the cable industry has come to the, the, the conclusion that um, they need fiber and they need to build out fiber to replace their cable map plant A so they can deliver speeds um, that compete with um, fiber players, excuse me, local broadband, um, local broadband service providers that already have fiber. In. Um, and, and that's, so the cable company is going through this process of if they, they turn up a new, uh, a, a new set of, of houses, it's all done at fiber. And then there's some magical software mixing that makes it look like cable. Right. And then for um, existing cable plant, um, it's legacy, it's old, it consumes power. Um, it needs to be fixed because it's, it's legacy. Um, for all the existing cable plant, there's a long-term um, goal to replace all this, um, all the legacy coax stuff with fiber. And um, the fiber industry needs the speed of fiber optics in order to deliver the services to compete with, um, with uh, telecommunications providers that are delivering broadband via fiber. So, so the cable company is a misnever. Cable companies actually, a, a, a cable's a marketing term Cable is evolving into a marketing term, basically, rather than a technical term for the technology they use, cable industry is going to fiber. Right. Um, so we take a step back. You know, if people who want to deliver high-speed broadband via wireless, they need fiber at some point because they, they need that backhaul capability or that advanced network capability to connect to the rest of the world and data centers. The cable industry is... Um, um, migrating to fiber because of the fact that they need the speed. I feel the need, the need for speed. They feel the need for speed and they want to get rid of their legacy plant that's costing them money in terms of truck rolls to repair and in terms of um, um, expense in terms of like power and things like that. Um, and, and then also migrating to fiber for the cable industry means that they can deliver the speeds that their competitors do within a particular market. Um, mm -hmm. Can so, I interrupt for just a second? A couple things. Sure. One, uh, about three years ago, I wrote an article about ag tech. And the, the thing that was really interesting in that article that I discovered was so many of the rural businesses, whether they're a farm or something related to agri agri agricultural technology, was, was one, there's a misnomer. There a lot of people, a lot of farms weren't being put out of business because big farms were coming in and gobbling them up. They were going out of business because they didn't have any work um, workers, people that weren't signing up. Hey, I want to go work on the farm like they did once upon a time because they didn't feel like there was opportunity. And two, 
the technology that could come and stand in the gap for them required high-speed connectivity um, in many cases. You've got a, this amazing technology in a drone that can fly your field. You don't need a crop duster. You don't need anything. And it's looking for pests. It's looking for the health of the crops. It's looking for aeration, like all of these things it could do. But it's got to download that data somewhere so that a tool can evaluate it, make a decision. It's very difficult to do that in real time, regardless of what technology. And it's so, I was like, you know, I don't, I don't know. I see the opportunity here, but who's going to extend the infrastructure out to communities like this? And it seemed like this could be an opportunity that um, at least some of these communities could take advantage of. They can get this extended to them, this high-speed connectivity. The other thing I was explaining to my kids, this isn't just um, watching Stranger Things in more color. Our homes are becoming so connected now. You know, what our biggest complaint many times around my house with kids in college that are home for the weekend. During the week, it's just pretty much my wife and I. It's no big deal. On the weekend, I've got three college-age daughters, um, one that's out in the workforce, and they all kind of come home for the weekend, at least two weekends of the month. And when all of their devices, they don't even think about it, their watch, their phone, their tablet, their computer, they're all on different television screens, our smart appliances, when they're all hitting my router, and they're trying to go over my pretty reasonably um, powered cable infrastructure on the back end, it's overwhelmed. That's exactly right. It's overwhelmed. And so and I want to tell them, it's not just faster, it's more, it's wider. It's not just quicker. You can do more things quicker. Yeah, I, I think it, it's interesting. There's a, there's a lot of different bits and pieces there. I want to hold off on the, the discussion about precision ag or smart agriculture. Sure. Because um, that rolls into our discussion about um, consumer electronics show that we're going to do a little bit later. Can we also um, talk about the multiverse then? Don't make, have... me sh don't, don't make me unplug and go away. <laughs> I want to um, talk about that. The I'll, same... I'll just, okay, go uh, ahead. I'll just I'll just preface the discussion on precision ag by saying John Deere is a data company and they've just been very bad about talking about how they're a data company. Right. Um, and and we'll leave that discussion okay. a little bit later. We'll come back. To um, the the issue of um, more bandwidth needed within the home, um, you know, it, it all boils down to fiber in the sense that. Well, there's a rec there's two parts to this. Number one is a recognition that you need a bigger pipe. And, right. and that's what COVID taught us was that you need a bigger pipe if you've got a lot of people at home trying to do work, be it right. work from home or, or uh, uh, schoolwork. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it reset the bar for a lot of folks. Um, and that upgrade has got to be fiber. I mean, in, in, in you know, currently the, the standard, and I think AT&T was going to talk about this next week. Currently, the, 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 the standard that AT&T wants to set in everybody's head is you need to have a gigabit of high-speed bandwidth into your house in order to support your four-person family doing video conferencing and all the other stuff that we're going to do, mm -hmm. plus a little overhead for things like our, our um, uh, voice machine or, or, or you know, at-home assistants that are voice-activated and so forth. Um, but... That doesn't. That just includes things, stuff that we need today for bandwidth. Okay. Now, when you start talking about things like um, higher-end security systems that do HD video, when you start talking about things such as in-home robotics, which sounds like, ooh, that's on crack. Well, right. no, we're, we're we're getting there. 
And that's, again, a part of the CES conversation we're okay. having a little bit. But you're going to need more bandwidth. So you're, you need to have something that can upgrade from a gigabit that's future-proof that can upgrade to 10 gig or upgrade to 25 gig or 50 gig or 100 gig to your home. And that, um, you know, and that sounds a little crazy too, but history tells us two things. History tells us, one, anybody that said, oh, you'll never use that much bandwidth has been full of it. Right. I remember back uh, two decades ago, um, the, the party line from Verizon was until they turned up Fiverr was nobody will ever use more than 100 megabits in your house. And you're kind of like, dude, we just went in one decade from from, you know, dial up modems to, you know, uh, multi megabit DSL. So 100 megabits, everybody's going to need 100 megabits. Right. Um, and we did that with storage and we did it with processors and we did it right. You'll never meet need more. I remember when my 286 processor was so fast, it left skid marks on my desktop. Right. And it was like 12 megahertz or my 40 megabyte hard drive or whatever it was. And my dad, who was on the shuttle at the time, was like, you've lost your mind. You will never need. We had four colors. If our printer today were to activate, we'd go into the safe shooter protocol here in my office if they heard that ta -ta 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 of those old printers going off so as we i think we're i'm guilty of that anyway of saying we'll never exceed 25 uh, yeah. gigabits of fiber at the house yeah until five years from now when you need it well you know and, and again the the car part of the jockeying here is that there are some folks that are trying to say fixed wireless will be good enough Mm -hmm. And and the fact of the matter is, history has always proven that that bandwidth usage always increases as we add more apps and more things like that. I mean, we haven't even gotten to crack flavored things like AR VR in your right. house, which right. I don't know. You know, call me in five years and tell me how that works. But right. but you know, if it's not AR VR, it's something else like so supporting robotics in your house, supporting more interactive or more. Um, uh, uh, you know, robotics in your house, you know, fill in the blank. We're always going to need more bandwidth. Well, it's so, like Tim Cook at Apple said, Doug, um, if you don't think of us in 20 years as a healthcare company, we haven't done our job. And what he means is the apps, the wearables, the, you know, when we have wearable pillows or whatever, you know, whatever those things are that are communicating in the home and uploading to an app online. And well, not everybody necessarily is going to participate in that. Yeah, that, that those are the kinds of things that we're talking about. This interconnectivity. Yeah. So, so putting down fiber lays you down a path, a, a forward growth path for the future, where you don't have to rip everything out. Um, you just replace the electronics on either end. So, so today you can get gigabit speeds, and and there's a, a certain number of folks that are just turning up 10 gig speeds from day one. They're just installing the infrastructure where I'm going to be able to deliver 10 gig to your home. I'm not even, I don't want to even screw around it for another decade. Right. All right. But if you look at what Nokia is doing today, Nokia has already set benchmarks of 25, 50, hundred um, gig pawn or, or basically a form of optical networking to your house. And, and, you know, Nokia has already spelled out how you move from 10 gigabits up to hundred gig uh, to the home. And when you start talking about those speeds, then, you know, servicing businesses is a lot easier. Um, you know, adding more applications in the household is a lot easier. I mean, you know, 100 gig may be, if we ever get to 100 gig and, and usage of that, maybe 100 gig will be our 
floor right. for um, uh, what we need. But I don't know. I mean, I don't want to say I never say never after after, you know, being a young, smart ass kid going, oh, you never need, you know, and, right. and these old guys from Verizon going, oh, you never need 100 megabit in the household. And now they're trying to sell gigabit speeds because they need to pay the bills. It's just, right. You know, and so, you know, I, I think that that's, you know, having said all that, um, you know, the problem with other ways to deliver broadband into the home, such as fixed wireless, I mean, these fixed wireless is great, but, you know, once you install it, you may get a gig or less, depending upon the technology. And then when you want to go faster, you end up replacing the cell towers and the equipment and putting in new equipment. And that's more money. Whereas if you just have fiber, you know, stick in another box or go on the network and, and you know, software-defined networking and turn up from, a, from, you know, gigabit speeds to 10 gig to 100 gig. Right. So there's a whole, there's a whole issue here of, of you want to future-proof networks and, and laying down fiber today means future-proofing your network. And it's something that, that the cable industry is, is less of future-proofing their network than trying to make their networks competitive um, in the future and not having to rip out all their electronics and splitters and crap like that. So fiber, fiber provides the, the baseline technology in order to ratchet the speeds up as needed um, without um, having to dig ditches every five, you know, having to dig ditches or relay cable or stuff like that. You think the folks that were, were betting on the idea of, um, the wireless solution, because there's a, you know, for the last, I don't know, decade, maybe, but certainly four or five years, it's all been to people who aren't familiar with the industry. It's been, look at how easy wireless is going to be. This is the great future. We don't have to put in a bunch of infrastructure. We can distribute it this way. And 5G is going to solve these problems. And I'm not anti-5G, but I talked to enough 5G experts who are like, look, 5G has got a role to play, but it's probably not the way people imagine it in the very near future, because there's so many things that we still have to overcome. How do I penetrate 5G from outside of the home or business into yeah. the home and business. And you know, these are the complications. And then you still have to have a very robust fiber infrastructure on the back end, whatever that 5G towers attached to so that it can get that, you know, all those 5G customers back. So do you think those people that have been really betting heavy into that space are going to now shift to this distributed infrastructure through fiber or do you think they're just going to partner with them and say, look, we're going to do this in areas where it makes sense. We're going to do this last mile 5G infrastructure and like at a stadium, right? There's so many things that I'm on my mobile device at my NASCAR race or my rodeo or whatever I'm at, my concert, and I'm able to have this enhanced experience because I'm inside, I'm tied into the 5G of the stadium or whatever. And now I get to have this great experience or on the plane or whatever it is where I might not be connecting to an outlet um, to fiber. Do you, do you see a play there or do you think people are going to shift and just go, no, look at all this money and opportunity over here in the, the hardwired um, area. Well, you can't, it, the, you can't install 5g without fiber. Right. Period. End of story. Cause in order to support, again, if, if you talk about 5g microcell or tower <laughs> or whatever, you right. know, sitting there zapping things out, either line of sight or non-line of sight, you know, that cell towers, you know, if we talk about, you know, best day, one person on it, you know, five to six gig per mm -hmm. second, maybe. 
-hmm. And then, but if you're going to support two people or more people on that, what do you need? Well, you need 100 megabit fiber plugged into that cell tower. So a lot of people, a lot of the discussion about fixed wireless solutions and 5G, you know, they kind of like go, well, we can't really talk about fiber because that's, you know, doesn't fit into our messaging. Right. So I, th I think that, that, you know, the net net is, 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 is you deploy more 5G, you're going to deploy more fiber. And, and the best way to think of that is that 5G is kind of like laying the groundwork for when fiber eventually pulls into some places where it may, may not be pulled into um, tomorrow due to economics. Mm -hmm. You know, the guys, you know, like you go into a small town and the small town just doesn't want to bite the bullet for, for digging up the roads and, and, and laying down fiber underneath whatever. Or there's a pole issue involved where, where they can't get permission to deploy fiber next to the uh, power on the power pole because of the local regulation, the state regulation says that, you know, that, that can't be done. Then in, 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 in certain political environments in, and, um, you know, or uh, economic build-out environments, you know, wireless is going to play a role. No doubt there is, no doubt. Right. But, you know, behind every good wireless project, there's going to be a lot of fiber. Right. End of story. I mean, if you take a look at some of the crazy that you talk about for like putting in 5G small cells into a one square kilometer or mile, square mile um, uh, thing, um, you know, there might be a dozen or more, uh, uh, well, there might be 16 small uh, microcells within a square mile, but each one of those microcells is connected to a hub via fiber. So, it's just, it comes into this question of the chicken or the egg. It's like, well, sometimes in order to get your wireless, you're going to have to have a, have a, um, you're going to have to have fiber. Right. But once you have the fiber there, then the next question becomes, well, if I've got a fiber within like a couple of hundred feet of somebody, why don't I just pull the fiber in there and um, switch the guy off a of wireless into a, an all fiber solution? Well, I, you know, yes, I, I'm curious to see how it's going to be distributed. And I don't mean necessarily the specific mechanism. I mean, is it going to be distributed like we distribute Congress people? Is there a ratio per population? Is it by industry? Is it by, you know, what's the difficulty factor and, and how are they going to do that? Is it by the quality of your lobbyist? Um, There's um, NTIA. Uh, is managing the distribution of funds. Mm. So there's a, there's going to be a, a, they're going through right now the process of, of rulemaking, listening to everybody and um, digging up the, uh, uh, laying out the formal process of handing out money and um, how they will evaluate projects. And, you know, everybody's got a project now and everybody, every, when I say everybody, it, it, every state, you know, they have projects or projects they're, they're um, figuring out who's going to get priority. So this money's going to be spent at the state level. So it'll be up to the state. So the state will get a block grant or get money for a specific project um, from the federal government. And then the states will manage and uh, build accordingly. So, so is there, you know, is there a big lobbying involved on this? No. I mean, you know, it's going to be how, which states can talk to the feds the best in order to pull the money down. Mm -hmm. Um 
you know, but every state, but again, every state has come to this recognition. I don't want to say come to Jesus moment because that would be religion, but <laughs> come to come to realize that broadband is necessary. And they've they've, you know, like with state of Virginia, state of Virginia is pouring in its own money to build out broadband within the state of Virginia. So everybody gets broadband. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in Oregon, they realize that while they may not be able to deliver broadband to everybody in the state of Oregon, because there's some really isolated places out in Oregon, they're putting in enough money to like at least pick pockets uh, with state money. And then once they have the state money spent um, for organizing a broadband office, and then the office goes to the feds and goes, oh, by the way, we have these other five projects we would like to fund. Please, sir, give me a couple of dollars. I had a conversation with somebody the other day that I thought was really cool. They were talking about the local public library. And there were a couple of things they were talking about. One was they were they had a project they were going down to do laser cutting. I'm, I'm in the Atlanta area and one okay. of our... Some of our libraries have 3D printers and laser cutters. I'm like, what could go wrong with just turning that over to the public? But it was really, it's a really cool project. And they sort of were pontificating about when you're talking about some of these remote areas, and it may be hard to get broadband all the way up every holler, every mountaintop, every valley for whatever reason. But if I can get it to a community center, if I can get it to a library, if I can get it, um, to a distribution point where people yeah. can then come and avail themselves if they want to, it's at least a way to get started. Um, the other is when, when we were talking about smart devices and at-home workers and at-home education, one of the things that I've seen a lot of people use, almost a godsend, is the telemedicine yeah. where you're, um, and I only see this growing. So one, you're, you're connected. We've used this a number of times for routine things in our home. Our doctor has, um, uh, it's very technology savvy, but also we've seen, we've, I've got personal experiences with people that have done it for mental health counseling, um, where, where, where they're seeing a road where devices that you may choose wearables, whatever that are doing, um, you know, maybe you wear a heart monitor or you're going through some of the other, just uh, um, biometric evaluation and real time, they can upload the data, they can run reports and apps, and you could talk to your doctor remotely and have real conversations. And if you're, and if they're going to begin to evaluate, um, you know, your, your ox level, because you're tied into the ox app and they want to look at your skin, they're going to need HD to do this. Like these things that we wouldn't even imagine five years ago, maybe even two years ago, all of this requires this big backend infrastructure um, and it gives in a weird way so much more freedom. Yeah, I think that, and it's interesting that it, it kind of gives me a segue to talk about CES, but if we, talk, <laughs> we talk about like telemedicine, for instance, um, you know, we're, we're, most of us are familiar with or, or have used what I call first generation telemedicine, which is basically two-way video conferencing. Right. I talk to my doctor, what are your symptoms? Well, my nose is still fall, but I have pain here. And right. the doctor goes, well, sounds like sinusitis. I'll write you a script. And, um, um, you know, and then it goes off to the, the pharmacist and I go pick up my, my meds. I mean, you know, all of a sudden I've saved like, you know, an hour plus out of the day from waiting in the waiting room and, and right. uh, and dealing with all that. So everybody goes away happy. That's first gen, you know, just video conferencing. Right. Um, second generation telemedicine, uh, telehealth issues 
are going to more link are deeply link into or, or start to weave into the devices that we wear, right? Um, as well as devices which our insurance companies may pay for, where they start gathering more um, physiological data over time, like things like heart rate, blood pressure, right? Uh, blood oxygen, um, respiration rate, sleep um, patterns, sleep patterns. Yeah, those things which you know your doctor. You're like, I don't know, doc. And right. you know, but if you were in your your Fitbit, then maybe you do know, assuming that we can right. work around the fact that you know this needs to be private, nobody needs to know other than your doctor, yada yada. I know somebody that has an apnea machine that real time uploads their data oh, yeah. every night and in real time to their app can give them, and it's 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 rudimentary now, but you could see the potential of this as saying, look. This is when you're getting, these are the days where you're getting the most best sleep, even without the, um, even with the device there, there, it, as we were having this discussion, they said, you know, on these days, um, my, my sleep patterns look like this. And on these days it looked like this, even with the machine, I had better quality or worse quality. And upon investigation, cause they have an app that helps to do essentially machine learn, yeah. And they give an analysis said, what's going on on these days? Come to find out, well, that's when I go do my drinking with my buddies when I'm watching the game and the alcohol is interfering with my sleep, whatever. And it just, and here's the spike in the other things and my blood pressure. And like, it was a fascinating discussion around um, how this can tie together, which of course, then I'm also thinking about well, what's the security around that? What's the, you know, how do you trans, but that's a conversation for another day, but yeah. Anyway, all these things being related, but it doesn't work well if you don't have the back end infrastructure to handle all of that data and communication. Well, it, it gets us to another point, which is like second generation, like I said, is that, you know, your your doctor will become more intimately woven into the your your working devices, with devices that, right. that we wear because there's, you know, FDA certs, there's do I believe certs, there's, you know, making sure that you know, that this is getting at least an accurate representation of, my, of what my heartbeat is and what my my uh, blood oxygen is on a given day, right. but as well as weaving with devices like your buddy's um, CPAP machine that, you know, relays back, you know, what the quality of sleep is based upon right. data statistics there. Um, and then there's also things where, where when I was at CES, there, you know, people are talking about, well, we'll ship a kit out to somebody that you're that your insurance provider will pay for that will do like, you know, you'll do a, 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 a BP monitor or something like that. A third generation takes a lot of that stuff and throws it away and replaces it with that guy the camera in your cell phone or the camera in your, your, um, in your, uh, in your computer. Um, I had some amazing conversations with um, folks, which were, were talking about doing, um, there was a Swiss company that was talking about doing blood pressure using nothing more than the the camera in your phone and, and downloading an app. And wow. you know, you wake up and you do your BP and boom, it's done. And then I talked with this French company that's like, oh no, you do not even have to touch anything. Please just pull down your mask. And I'm like, mm, okay. Um, but anyways, there's a but basically had they had a camera staring at my face and they could. And it tell you what my uh, breathing rate was and my heart rate was just by looking at my face and, and you know processing processing the data that the camera was bringing in. And they're working on ways to get certified for blood pressure and for uh, blood oxygen, pulse oxygen, you know, 
through your camera on your phone. And, and all of a sudden that, you know, if I've got a cell phone, all of a sudden I can pull up VP, like I, I can pull up physical vitals for you, um, you know, within 30 seconds or so. And I think that that's very, that's going to be very powerful too, because a lot of the, the a lot of the problem with the second generation stuff, when you start talking about, um, uh, shipping devices to people, right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like it locks you in a proprietary ecosystem. Like, let's say my doctor, Dr. A, um, you know, says here, you're going to do this stuff, you know, blood pressure cuff and monitor your, your other vitals using this set of equipment. And then I have to go switch insurance companies because of course we all have to switch insurance companies at least once or twice in our, in, in five years. Right. And then, you know, the doctors, the doctor or the insurance company is going to be like, well, we don't use that stuff anymore. We have to ship you a different set of equipment. Like, ah, I don't right. want to do all that. You know, that third generation stuff, we won't have to buy any of that crap. We'll just use our cell phone or a you know, certified cell phone, or maybe the insurance company will go, you know, oh, here's another $50. Upgrade your cell phone so we can, you know, so your so your uh doctor can um, gather all these stats for you. Um and and it'll lead to better quality of care. I'm I want to ask you about um you keep calling it CES, a consumer electronic show for our listeners who don't know what CES is, which is Candyland for people like you and I. It's also terrifying land. Like you fall down the rabbit hole because when you're describing the camera, I'm like, yeah, that sounds fantastic. What happens when they put them in the mall or in, you know, whatever, whatever places we go to in public and they're just sitting there watching and they're on the one hand, maybe it's a public benefit. Hey, look, I'm able to predict this person. They don't even know it is entering into a unhealthy health situation or for a bartender, these people at your bar or at your table that you're serving are reaching a blood alcohol level, like on and on and on their, their car won't activate, right. Or you're not culpable. You can cut them off and there's all these great benefits, but I also, as a libertarian, get pretty anxious about the surveillance state and controlling the data and what happens with it. Do you ever think about that when you see this technology? You're like, man, this is great when it goes great. What happens when uh, it's misused? Unfortunately, um, you know, and you knew this history as anybody else. Um, if you look at the history of Wi-Fi or if you look at the history of IoT, um, healthcare may be a little bit different, but you look at the history of Wi-Fi and you look at the history of IoT and you look at the history of devices like the voice-activated uh, assistant made by Amazon sitting on my my desk. Right. Um, usually, it's build it first and then security. Well, we'll fix it like six generations down the road. Right. And Dave, you know this. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. You know, I'm not telling We're you not, something you don't already right. know. But that's you know that's with IoT, with wireless. Um, you know, a couple other tech that I can't think of. You know, we 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 build. We have this bad habit of building stuff and then fixing it. Right. Now with healthcare, it's a little bit different because you've got health, you've got safety issues and regulatory issues um, where um, where we're, we're trying to preserve or protect privacy of the individual, um, you know, like the aforementioned HIPAA standard where, where, you know, the only person who should be able to look at your healthcare information is your doctor, period, end of story. Right. Um, that doesn't mean I can't ask you questions, Dave, about your vaccination status because HIPAA doesn't cover that. But anyways, right. so this aside from that. So healthcare, there are certain factors and, and certain government agencies built in there. Like, you know, the, the food and drug has to certify on, on whether or not a device is viable for use. And that's going to go for software as well. 
there'll be other certification boards or standards in Europe. Um, so it's a matter of after you, after we blow away all the smoke for things like, you know, is it, a, you know, the, the question, Dave, you want to ask, is it appropriate for, for a camera in a public place to gather your, your, your health metric information? And the answer is probably going to be in Europe, probably not unless you are entering a public venue for one time screaming for COVID or for some other illness. Right. And, and I don't know, and there's not an easy answer to this because there isn't, because in certain cases like public good, like if you and I are going to concert, right. And, and, you know, we want to go to a concert, we don't want to wear masks because we don't, you know, right. we don't want to, we want to, we want to headbang. Right. Our kids, we won't talk about headbanging. Right. But, you know, we, we want to, we want to do this. Um, you know, we'll pass by us, by we'll probably pass by camera, camera will snap our vitals on a one time basis. And, and for us individually, it, it may if I've got a, a slight temperature or if I've got a temperature elevated thing, they might just say, uh, you know, uh, let's talk to you and have a few more questions before we admit you into this venue, which, by the way, is not really public, but is right. run by a business. And this business doesn't want to see me collapse and, you know, have a heart attack or um, give fact, COVID my, to like right. 100 people. And I, when I came to the office today to my studio, I had to go through a temperature screening and I... We, we have a standard set of questions that the folks at the front door ask. When I was speaking to uh, Christina Chase, she's a, um, among other things, professor at MIT. She runs the uh, MIT sports lab. Yeah. And one of the things we talked about was, well, who owns the data? Because they had their, they're now in smart fabric and all of the, all of the data gathering around professional sport versus amateur sport and how they do that. And um, without going down too far a rabbit hole, I mean, one, the big things that some of the big things, it's not just how do we leverage this data, but it's who owns it. Does the athlete, does the team, does the venue, does the league, do the consumers, who owns whatever the data is? And that is a, in some cases, a tricky uh, question. I Just as we, I want to dive into the CES, but I, I'm imagining as we look at the opportunity for all of these devices and how they can bring um, convenience and um, accuracy and benefit to our lives, there's also, they bring inherent risk. And to your point earlier, we may be three, four, five, six generations into something before we realize um, I've introduced risk into my world that I didn't mean to. I'm thinking of, uh, one of the big breaches at one of the big casinos in Vegas came through a modem on the aquarium. You know, they, they thought they were bringing in a really cool aquarium and they had no idea that when they installed the, um, the router, rather, I said modem, I meant router, when they installed this router and it was incorrectly connected to their backend network, they opened a back door into their infrastructure and it was exploited. So there's all this complexity as we're looking at, wow, look at these great, tools and I'm a I'm a technology optimist but I think we just always need to be uh, cautious yeah I, mean, I think it's fair I mean you know but again it's it's I've I've I've, I've seen you know it, it's unfortunately you, you always see a story repeating people think that they have a good idea on security right. and then somebody figures out that no they didn't um, you know and I, I again when it comes to collecting healthcare information um, you know, a public setting versus a private venue, you know, I, 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 there's a go slow approach to it that, um, so far so good. Yeah. 
So CES, you got to go do that magical experience. It's magical every year that they have it. And I've written down here a couple things in home robotics, which yep. heck to the yeah, I'm interested in that. And then I also want to uh, tease you in multiverse, which I feel like you're going to turn red when we do that. So let's start. Let's do that later. Let's talk about robotics, in-home robotics, and some of the other cool things you saw. Well, in-home is kind of a misnomer. I'd say just useful robotics. Okay. Um, the um, We're kind of like moving from the concept stage of, of oh, well, robotic will do this to that. It'll look like you're a human being. and It'll bring your drinks to something that's a little bit more practical. Um, right. Actually, we'll start in the home and we'll go outside of the home. Um, within the home, I saw some interesting concepts for what I call moving tables, where Basically, it's a it's a it's a smart dolly, for lack of a better term, that it could move and and go to a um, go to a refrigerator, and then a refrigerator door magically opens and it slides out a tray of cool drinks, and then it comes back to you and delivers the drinks or food to wherever you want. You've so just reduced the U.S. population by thirty percent. Most people have children. At least thirty percent people have children just to get them to go get them something from the kitchen and bring it back to you. Once upon a time, it was to do, you know, change the antenna on the TV. Yeah. That's been done for 30 years. Now we eliminate the need to send, you know, junior versions of ourselves to the kitchen to get stuff. I don't know. That could be a significant societal impact. Well, yeah, you're already seeing it with the obesity rates increasing over the years. But anyways, <laughs> um, I, I think that, but, you know, there's, but if you're in a, a home care situation where you have limited mobility or um, um, you have a situation where you're moving stuff around a lot, um, there are robots that will move things for you um, or bring things to you. And that's pretty useful. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's, there, there's still... Hyundai and others are still working their concepts where they're you have assisted mobility with an exoskeleton or with a robotic arm that's able to reach out and pick up things and give it to you. Like the robotic arm in, in this case may be something where if you're in a wheelchair, then the robotic arm can, you know, sit next to you or beside you and reach up on the counter and grab something and, and pick up something and then bring it back to you. Yeah. So so there's some interesting stuff going on there. Um I think the more interesting thing is you go outside the home and are starting to see what I call the evolution of chonky robots. These big, heavy, you know, made of metal or, right. or, or very high durability plastic to do tasks outside of the home. I saw one company from uh, South Korea and um, that was making uh, robots to uh, blow snow, snow blowing robots. Wow. And I was like, well, it, the irony was I'm walking around CES and my wife's at home stuck in the house for like two days because it snowed in the snowed back home here. Right. So, you know, it would have been nice to have like the, the snowblower robot just come out and, and clean off the driveway and clean off the sidewalk. Um, so, but, but, you know, again, it's something that, you know, uh, I think their, their cost point was 2000 to $4,000, which is like, well, that's a lot of money. But on the other hand, if you got a lot of snow, you know, it runs, starts coming up in the delta between, you know, man push snowblower versus remote snowblower. Well, would I pay a little extra or maybe up the double for not having to push that sucker around? Right. Yeah. Well, how, well, okay. Oh, how nuanced. Take my money, please. <laughs> um, the other thing where I saw chunky robots, so to speak, or, or I saw these little low to the ground robots that were designed for agriculture because they're low to the ground. So 
So they look like little caterpillar, caterpillar treads, mm-hmm. you know, like little tractors in essence, without, without a thing to ride on top, mm-hmm. um, which would go in the field and they plow the field and then a different robot would plant the seeds and tend to the, the, the crops that grow. So you had all these little robots come well, little in the sense small, but chunky robots to do agriculture. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah. And then on the high end for, for agriculture, um, John Deere, remember that data right. company posing as a tractor company. Yeah. Um, John Deere got a big uh, send off because they've um, taken their tractor and then stuck cameras and some AI on it. And now it can go plow the fields and, monitor and uh, spray the crops by itself. Without without a human being sitting in front of the tractor, so that's kind of cool. I saw a robot uh, a year or so ago that, when you're describing them, an ag robot, big big treads, and it would run down a row with the plants coming underneath. And one of the things that they solved was they didn't have to categorize every single plant and every single insect. What they did was they just categorized and through machine learning, this is what broccoli looks like. Or, or whatever it was. I think it was broccoli. This is what it looks like. This is what a healthy plant looks like. This is the stages of its growth. This is the color of it. This is what the soil should look like. Like here, and they just spent all this time building a library of what a healthy broccoli looks like and what should be on it. If you find anything, a soil that looks different, a color that looks different, a pest on it, or anything, anything foreign to this picture, remove it. And so if it were bugs or pests, it would vacuum them off. If it were uh, soil that was arid, it would water or whatever. It would do, yeah. do these things and it would just go up and down, up and down and up and down the <coughs> row. The consequence of that was you had to be very, um, there couldn't be a lot of deviation. You know, It had to be very mapped out, very particular, very specific. When you're looking at some of these robots, um, whether it's a snow blowing or whatever, how much um, nuance or, you know, small movement are they as opposed to uh, the larger kind of big movement a little bit, I don't mean in size bulkier, but, you know, they're not as precise as, I, I see some people playing a piano and they're kind of, you know, yes, they know the chords, but it's just really this basic whatever, as opposed to a master piano player that can feather and lightly touch and whatever. What, what was your experience so far? How are they evolving? Well, I think the recognition is that, that, that probably the best way to describe this would be to, to talk about the conversations I had with John Deere and, okay. and at the John Deere Pavilion. Um, the, um, the John Deere tractor, the autonomous tractor, has got three cameras in the front, three cameras in the back. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you know, don't you need to do high-end video processing for, you know, do whatever? And the guy's like, no, we're only moving three miles an hour. I don't need to do that. You know, I, I can, you know, I sample three frames a second and, you know, I can stop. And since the, the tractor's not running around 60 miles an hour, it's maybe running six miles an hour. I can stop before I hit somebody's cat or farmer right. summers in a field, you know, to run it over and then just radio uh, uh, an alert. Hey, something's right. sitting down in my field. Go move right. the dog. Right. Go chase off the fox or whatever. I mean, it's, right. it's um, you know, it, the processing matches the capability it's and, it, and i found this ironic because again people have been talking about you know uh elon musk and tesla yeah fully autonomous cars and 
you know, John Deere's like, well, we'll just use, we don't have to use high-end, you know, high-speed stuff. We'll just use, you know, you know, cheapest jets and we can get on there to, to process through a couple frames a second. And so long as it's um, light outside, we're good to go. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a, you know, if you want to do the, the, the question or the, the space, the, 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 the trade space becomes how much edge computing do you want to do, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, um, you want to take all this data and you process the, you know, if, if, you, if you do minimal edge processing, the only processing you're to do in the, in the John Deere tractor is making sure that it doesn't hit anything. Right. This is, again, like life safety. And, oh, by the way, um, if you want to take this video feed and um, send it back either wirelessly or with, with uh, ag, it's store and forward because, of course, there's no broadband in the field. Right. Or there's wireless broadband in the field. Right. Um, you, when, it comes, when the tractor comes back into the barn, you, you can offload the video that's collected, and then you can AI process that and go, hmm. Oh well, this seed doesn't look quite right here. Do we need to go out and and you know have Farmer Joe look at it and see whether or not it's really blight, or can we ignore it? That sort of thing. Right. So I mean, there's a there's a to, to to circle back to what you were saying. You know, do you process it at the edge, or do you just collect the data, the raw data that's good quality data, and then you know offload it and then process it and then just flag the anomalies as you see fit, and then you know just do all that processing in the cloud. And since you guys are in data centers, obviously maybe more cloud bias than edge processing bias. But um, you know, there's different ways people are 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 slicing the banana, so to speak. There's so many conversations with content providers that I've been having in all these different fields that really you you started this at the beginning when you held up your smart device, right? Your your yeah. smartphone with the cameras and all these other things. <laughs> there there seems to be a huge movement of getting the compute so much of what we're calling the edge instead of in a edge data center or whatever, it's going to be on my tablet. It's going to be on my phone. It's going to be the can- the sophistication of the camera on the phone, the sophistication of the microphone. This is an area where they're really talking about content provide. Well, I, I shouldn't say their names, so I'm not going to say their names, but people that I've talked in the industry <clears throat> who aren't necessarily representing their particular company, but they're just saying this is initiative how do I get things to cache and to process and whatever on these devices instead of at the base of a cell tower or whatever yeah. to the minimum necessary to get it back then to a regional or core data center to do the, um, to do the work instead of trying to figure out that space power challenge of, of, of thousands upon thousands of sites I'd have to have around. I, we'd rather figure it out on the device. Yeah, I mean, and then you know, but again, that, that and again, you get in, and then you get into the, the the space trades between. Okay, well, if I'm going to do it on the device, I'm going to need more power. Mm-hmm. And how much power do I want to put on my device? Well, then I got a bigger device. I got a more expensive device. Right. <laughs> you know, there's a Never there's ending. a there, there, there's circular. There's this whole circular thinking here that mm, yeah, okay, maybe it's good, maybe it's not so good. Right. But um, you know, for things like the cell phone industry where where there's a there's a driving curve to put more power into the cell phone per you know cubic square centimeter of um of of phone power in there that kind of makes sense for more one-off devices then you 
you know, more one-off devices, we end up scratching our heads and going, well, you know, how much more, you know, how optimized do I want to do? And in, in, in terms of um, stuff, like I've had conversations with IOT guys and, and, and one of the IOT um, vendors I was talking to, he's like, he's got advice that, you know, just, you know, talks to other, you know, might measure pipeline. Um, you know, he, he hooks in a, a third party sensor and it can measure um, what's going on within a pipeline. And I said, well, you know, if you're just sticking a cell phone chip in there, you can get more data like temperature, um, vibration, um, sound. Um, and all of a sudden that'll tell you more about the, the, you know, if you use this information intelligently and you can collect it cheaply because it's a cell phone chip. So it's low power and, and, and gathers more information. When you gather these little bits of information, maybe that'll tell you more than just like flow level within the pipeline. You can actually tell things about the physical status of the pipeline if you have baseline data to gather. So, yeah. so I don't, you know, so it's one of these things where, um, you know, one of the, the, the gizmos I saw at CES was uh, there was a company pushing very low cost, like, you know, literally smaller than my thumbnail type of sensors that will measure uh, one attribute like vibration, like temperature, um, like pressure. Um, you know, if you proliferate these things and they're like 50 cents or less, then you can stick them in other devices and then gather that raw data and then backhaul it and then make sense of it with AI and, you know, data lakes or whatever have you. I was talking to somebody who said one of the things that they're working on right now is a project to print these sensors mm-hmm. in, um, <clears throat> in material that's you know, it's, it's a penny or less is the cost yeah. to print this stuff and it's um, biodegradable. And it's all, and, and he said, you know, it seems far-fetched, but we're actually coming into the home stretch to make this happen. Five years ago, we didn't even think it was possible. And now just with the advances in material science and the ability to print this stuff um, and then the data that comes along with that, you know, we can track this thing. It's super easy to do. And here's the information that comes back to us. And one of the areas as you're as you're walking through and you're talking to all of these people and you see all of these marvels <laughs> what two questions what what seemed the most real that you you thought to yourself wow this is really going to be i see this happening in the very near future this is going to be great benefit to me or to the industry or my fellow human beings whatever and two did you walk away from any conversation saying, Hmm, I wonder how the security around that's going to work. Whatever. I'm not saying they're related. I mean, just security, just as you know, again, kind of like our conversation before is we talk about more and more of this connectivity. It's like putting more and more doors on my home. If I don't keep the locks and the, you know, paying attention, I may have guests that I don't intend. Um, So, but really, your practical experience of I've, I've experienced this technology. Here's what I think is going to happen in the very near future. I can see it. And I think it's going to be a great impact. Well, I I think, let me answer your second question first about security. Um, There was one company at um, espousing this um, security container for voice activated um, gizmos um, where, you know, because either your phone's always listening to you or your, a device is always listening to you um, or your Google Nest or whatever the hell. Right. And, um, and, you know, they have this, essentially this box that you can put your voice activated device in and it 
closes up like cone of silence. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, I'm like looking at it and going, and, and the friend, one of the gentlemen I was with, we got really excited about this because I'm like, because it cuts off all your voice activated devices. And I'm like, look, I'm like, Maybe you shouldn't have that. If you're not worried about security, right. maybe you should have a voice activated device. He goes, no, 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 no. This will only, you know, you can say a magic word and it'll open Sesame for you and allow you to talk to your device. And then five minutes later, it'll close Sesame. And I'm like, well, okay, that's dependent upon your behavior. But, you know, if you want to, you want to have this box that isolates your voice activated devices um, for you, you know, and spend that extra money for the physical clunk, then, you know, good for you. But, you know, I, I'm not, Right. It's not, not clicking for me. Um, so I think from, from that sort of thing, that, that security perspective, that I, I think was, it was interesting, but I'm kind of like, yeah, show me that that really works and show me, show me A, that that really works the way you say it goes. B, show me that human behavior will not ultimately defeat the purpose of this That's device. That's exactly what I was thinking. I could just see it now. I'm chuckling because I've got a friend who's got every IoT thing you can have. In fact, one of my pastimes when I'm bored there is I get Siri to argue with Alexa and see who's going to win. But, you know, we can, um, oh, I probably shouldn't say that name. So I'll say Fran. We'll say Fran. Yeah. I don't want to activate anything in your in your home there or your office. But you'd find yourself pretty quickly, Fran, what's the weather? Nothing would happen. Fran, what's the, hold on. Tony, let Fran out of the box. Yeah. Fran, what's the weather? The weather is, you know, and after a few times of having to talk to Tony to get Fran to do the thing, pretty soon you say, Tony, go to sleep. You know, you just, you just turn Tony off. Yeah. You want Tony bossing Fran or whatever. And you just, it, it yeah, just, just wouldn't yeah, work. It's, it, yeah. There's a level will be, you know, and, and, and again, it's, it's, you're trying to counter installed behavior. Right. And, and, you know, I've got distributed devices throughout my house. So I'm going to, I'm gonna have to buy a box for each. I'm gonna to have to buy a lockbox essentially. Right. Didn't work in out. SNL. Probably won't work now to get these lockboxes. So. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I, I think in terms of cool tech, um, the um, read my face um, virtue of of cell phone camera or or, or basically you know portable right. device camera. Um, they actually work, and mm -hmm. I was like, you know, I. I, I went to like the French company that had this device that would look at my face and I, I had it look at my face for 30 seconds. Ah, yeah. Okay. BP of 92. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, let's see what this says. Oh, BP of 91. Okay. We're in, we're, we're with an error of, you know, right. so I bang. Okay. We're within, you know, error of precision of, um, you know, you know my they didn't just read your watch versus your, no, it didn't just, read <laughs> um, but you know, so, and the fact of the matter is there's like a dozen companies from like Israel to France to um, Switzerland to Taiwan that are basically they're they're pumping they're pumping the software stack to get right. the most bang for the buck out of the out of the, the uh, compute out of the data that your phone collects to gather health information. And um, it, it just fascinates me. And in it in it the the Swiss company. Um, their initial cell is um, getting somebody to underwrite the software so that they can ship it to um, developing world countries where, you know, you're never going to have somebody buy a BP cuff because they're too expensive. Right. And maybe the clinic down the road, maybe have one BP cuff and it's beat up because of the humidity and weather. Um, but, you know, they'll just, you know, 
the, the guy at home, he, he, his prized possession is his cell phone. Maybe he'll measure his, his uh, blood pressure once a day right. using his, um, using his own cell phone. And then that information gathered over time um, will help him have better health outcomes rather than kicking up a heart attack at the age of 45. So I think that that, 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 that is very expensive. And it's funny that you mentioned that because the, the company, the Swiss company I was talking to, you know, they started talking about, well, and then we'll gather all these information from all these populations. And I'm kind of like, Oh, tell me you're going to anonymize the data. Well, right. Maybe we shouldn't have this conversation now, but, but I mean, you know, the net net is that, that, you know, anytime that you can use an existing piece of technology and repurpose it for something else, then it, then it works. Um, you know, you, you've probably seen this too, David. I mean, I saw a couple of booths that had um, or have had the, the technology has been around for a while. They'll use Wi-Fi to figure out, um, they'll use Wi-Fi as essentially in-home radar mm-hmm. to see if you have an intruder in your house, okay, mm-hmm. or to see if uh, grandma has been moved, has moved around or has fallen down, right? Right. Yeah. You've seen, you've seen this. I've and, talked to uh, a friend of mine was a CEO at Accenture Digital, just retired, and he helped fund a startup for that very purpose it's essentially creating not lidar but 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 to your mapping a home it's and, radar it's it's it's, it's radar because you're using two four that's 2.4 right. gigahertz radar and it's right. just like it's the most perverse and yet cool thing that you, you think about it's like well i can if i can use rf now if i'm going to do it for communication if i can also use it to map movement then you know that's a win for everybody yeah you know and and, and then they don't have to have an in-care person there it will tell you and it can alert the care providers. Hey, somebody hasn't moved or it can tell them if they're vertical or horizontal or like all of this different data. Yeah, exactly. And, and then um, gives them a form of autonomy, but also gives you a form of security if you're responsible for these uh, folks. I was just going to say, but kind of where we started with the infrastructure bill, I don't think we ever got your, your opinion on when do you think this is Everybody wants the money, but when do you think we're going to see real measurable, like, you know, move at the speed of the hyperscalers who want to show up and give you Google fiber or, you know, Facebook, this, or whatever that they seem to be moved pretty quick in the private industry. When do you think we're going to see experience as a consumer, the benefits of this in in Um, a real tangible way? Like I really am seeing it. Are we 12 months out, five years out? I think that um, you're starting to see some of that today in terms of, um, I mean, private money is always is already being used to upgrade your up, like in the cable industry, cable industry doesn't want to admit it. Cable industry is going to, going to install more fiber as much as the fiber people are over the next five years. And then some, right. Um, So you're going to start to see more competition from a consumer side on, um, on broadband um, kick off the next two to three years. And for folks who don't have this stuff, they're going to get plugged into it, and and it's and it's and they're going to see more, um, more benefit from it um, down the road. But I mean, you know, you'll see full effect in probably like three, four years, and you'll start to hear about some of these projects of people coming online in the next two years, two to three years. Um, so, like with rural, within you know, if we go to the the rural um, areas that they don't have or have limited broadband. Um, you know, you're going to see them start investing into precision ag. You're going to start seeing them invest in, you're going to start seeing home prices come up into those places. Because if you have fiber, fiber ads like anywhere from five to 8%. Well, no, I don't want to lie here. It's like three to 4%. If you have fiber optic 
broadband, it adds three to four percent to the value of your home. And then if it's if it's a rental property, multi-tenant dwelling, um, you can get up to eight percent more out of rents if you have fiber into like a in an apartment building. That's phenomenal. Um, I had no idea. Yeah, it's 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 you know so and in but but the you know it, it's also the issue of you know, Dave, you can, you know, if you don't want to do business in Atlanta, and I don't know where you are in Atlanta, but if you want to do business like from uh, a second home um, and you got fiber, surprise, Easy. you can do it. Yeah. I can I mean, live my whole connected life with connected fiber. I mean, there's nothing we can't, no entertainment, no work, no um, medical. If I've got broadband, significant broadband, uh, I could take care of not only my house, but my whole family. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's going to be, and again, it's something where, you know, again, now we're, now we're at the speed of government and, you know, libertarian evil government, um, <laughs> you know, but government has to go through its process to, to, to properly allocate, well, hopefully allocate and spend money and then uh, give it to the States to actually implement. So, you know, it's going to take a couple of years for the money to, um, arrive where it's needed. But I think that once that we start seeing some of these projects pop up, I mean, there's a, there's a longer term productivity curve that we're going to see from agriculture and um, uh, government and healthcare. Um, just, you know, if I say ag, healthcare and government, mm-hmm. um, you know, those three things alone, there's going to be significant payoffs down the road as the, as, as you start getting broadband turned up. We should start seeing better healthcare outcomes. Um, you know, agriculture should be more efficient. Um, and, um, you know, government, for as much as we always kick government, maybe, you know, they may be able to manage day-to-day live, day-to-day events. Um, uh, simple things like traffic flow and, and you know, generating more tax revenue um, to things like natural disasters. They should be able to do that a lot more efficiently, too, as we get more broadband online. Yeah, I think so. I I just got done reading a book called um, The Exponential Age by a guy named Azim Azar, who's been on the show. And one of the most fascinating chapters, in fact, is what we talked about most of the time was um, the, the next gen city. And he didn't mean smart city. He just meant cities that are going to do vertical farming and yeah. the connected world and how it's going to, expon- in his opinion, exponentially change. And um, a lot of what you described is uh, is part of that. Where are you going to, what are you writing on in the next few uh, articles? What are you thinking about? You know, I need to do a refresh on, on things that are come on data coming down from space. Um, there's a lot of IOT stuff that's um, uh, like Laura Wan um, just recently issued an update for their IOT standard where you, they can formally pluck data from a device on the ground from a satellite. So I need to look at that a little bit. Um, I'm, um, you know, beyond that, I'm, I'm still processing through CES. Um, you know, CES was very nice this year because, and I know that that upsets some of the CES organizers because normally at CES, the the, the average over the last couple of years has been 170,000 plus people. I know, that's correct. And, and this year was 40,000. And it upsets, you know, and this upsets people. Right. Well, it will, well, it may, it didn't, it, that, 40,000 is a beautiful show. Right. Because, you know, if you had 170,000 of your best friends, you're waiting for a cab for 20 to 30 minutes. You can't sit down in a, in a you know, it's right. just cities are not meant to do that. Right. 
Right. Um, you know, 40,000 people. Hey, oh, I need to get on the bus from point A to point B. Hey, no line. Hey, the bus is moving. Hey, there's not any traffic that's clogging right. the streets. I mean, it was it was a beautiful experience there. But um, and I think it's going to take a couple of years for CES to rebuild back from 40,000 to that higher level of folk yeah. um, that, that come and attend. Because what's happened is I know there's a whole mythology of, oh, virtual events, virtual events. But I think virtual events do have their um, downside. Yeah. And, um, you know, like people don't, when you go to, when you go to a different city, you're unplugged from your office and you're focused on what's going on at an event. Right. Whereas Dave, when you and I hang up, I'm going to turn on and, you know, go crank through something else. I'm not focused on you anymore. I'm moving right. on to the next thing. So. Well, then uh, I didn't do my job well enough. I need to make a better impression. <laughs> I love the hybrid. You know, I'm a, I'm a social animal. I recharge when I'm with people. I'm an extrovert, yeah. although I have to have alone time and, and introverts some need to be around people on occasion for full mental health, but they recharge by themselves. But I love the idea. I couldn't get to, out to CES this year, but I love the idea of the right size environment. You know, if you go to a big racing event where there's 150 to 200,000 people, you kind of go to your spot and you stay there. Yeah. The 200,000 of you aren't trying to move around the whole, you know, this whole yeah. event. It's, it's impossible. And that thing as beautiful as it is. And I think it's, probably the most interesting show anywhere in the world not just because of the tech it's all the range of tech it's this healthcare tech it's gaming tech it's productivity it's yeah. healthcare you know all these other things and lessons learned and what's possible in the future and that captures human being imagination so well look i know we've uh, we've taken up a lot of your time thanks for coming on the show today i can't wait to talk to you again we didn't talk much about space which is what we talked about almost all of last time so this next time maybe this summer or in the fall we can get back together and uh satellites i i think in the summer-ish we can um or in or late spring i can put on my um my uh my space t-shirts and i can we can talk about space <laughs> I'm, I'm good to go on that dave i look forward to it well doug Moni, thanks for joining us on the show and where can people find you when they want to read more or hear more from you um, probably the best way to reach me right now or follow me is uh, Doug on IPCOM, C-O-M-M, on Twitter. That's probably the best place to find out what I'm doing and what I've got my fingers into. Perfect. We'll make sure we include that in the comments below. And uh, thank you for joining us today. And if you've enjoyed the show, folks, like, subscribe, share, and comment. We'll see you next time on the QTS Experience. Thanks, Doug. Thank you. Thank you.